TED Audio Collective. Tired of unnecessary payroll errors? Stop them in their tracks. With Paycom, employees do their own payroll. They're able to identify errors and fix them before submission, right in the app. Because no one can afford for payroll to be wrong. Not HR and payroll teams, not leaders, and definitely not employees. Shorted paychecks, timesheet corrections, unentered sick days, missing overtime hours, and expense mistakes are, well, unnecessary for everyone. Manage the process to make payday right with Paycom. Learn more at paycom.com slash soundrise. That's paycom.com slash soundrise. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. Hope says that there's somewhere better to go. I feel it negates where we are. It's it's sort of this thing of it just will happen. Things just will get better. Things get better if we take actions to make them better. Support for Design Matters Media is provided by Wix.com, which puts the creative power of building dynamic websites back into the hands of designers. As anyone who has spent time in a WYSIWYG platform knows, what you see isn't necessarily always what you get. On the flip side, for some, it's far too easy to get lost in code and lose the forest for the trees. Wix.com allows you to find your own personal sweet spot and take control of your site with their drag-and-drop editor, hundreds of advanced design features such as retina-ready image galleries, custom font sets, HD video, and parallax scrolling effects, and even serverless, hassle-free coding for robust websites and applications. With Wix.com, you have total control of your web design like never before. So join Wix's brilliant community of designers, artists, and creatives at large around the world for free and ask yourself, what will you create today? This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 14 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with Jack Ferver about his career in dance theater. All art is political. It's either waking you up or it's putting you to sleep. Here's Debbie Millman. The performance artist and dancer, Jack Ferver, isn't afraid to shock, provoke, or mystify. His work digs deeply into gender, sex, power, and politics. The New Yorker once called his performances so extreme, they sometimes look and feel like exorcisms. So what exactly is Jack Ferver doing? Part ballet, part theater, and all infused with social commentary? 
Fervor says he sees himself as a mirror, using both humor and darkness to engage with audiences and reflect their emotional and psychological rawness. Fervor is also a professor at Bard College. His work has been performed at the Guggenheim, the New Museum, the Kitchen, and Performance Space New York. He's here today to talk about his work, his life, and his new show, Everything is Imaginable, which just debuted at New York Live Arts. Jack Fervor, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you so much for having me, Debbie. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, I'm happy it's you're so here good too. To see you yes. always. <laughs> Jack Out Magazine wrote this about your 2012 show, Two Alike. The show is a psychosexual, semi autobiographical, choreographic piece that explores the bullying, terrorizing, and abuse fervor suffered as a child in rural Wisconsin. And Jack, you've said that your main reason for making art is so people don't feel as lonely as you have felt. So please tell us a little bit more about your childhood. I know you described it as boys don't cry, but without the funny parts. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's my, that's my one-liner for it. Um, as they said, I grew up in rural Wisconsin and my parents were older. They weren't anticipating on having another child. Um, you were a surprise baby. I was a surprise baby. My sister is 18 years older than me. My brother is 20 years older than me. People, I mean, even growing up, people thought that my parents were my grandparents. My parents were from Madison, Wisconsin, and and uh, they were both very liberal uh, uh, Democrats. My father was a professor at the UW of Madison, Wisconsin. He was 59 when I was born. Uh, How old was your mom? My mother was 43. Wow. So I, I had these parents who were older and I, I didn't have siblings which is who were in the house, which is one thing. But also I just right away I, I wanted to be an actor. I, early on, we're in this place now where, which is so amazing that there's so much discourse about trans. When I grew up, there wasn't. And I remember in kindergarten saying, I'm, I'm half boy, half girl. And that's that was sort of the beginning of the end. So the bullying started pretty early on. And then it progressed and became more violent by the time I was in high school. Um, violent in what way, Jack? Um, I mean, and I, I talked about this in, uh, in Everything is Imaginable. I, uh, there's the example I gave in that was when this kid slammed me into a locker and there was like a piece of metal sticking out of the locker and it cut through my shirt and through my arm and he spit in my face. And But stuff like this was – that's just an example of daily occurrences that were happening. And the school never intervened or? It was very, just ignore it. And sometimes there'd be maybe a, an office visit. What it did was I knew that I had to use whatever I had to get out. And for me, I, I early on was acting. I knew I was good at it. I was told I was good at it. I found out about the arts camp, Interlochen Arts Camp. And I auditioned to go to that, and I got in, and then a, a teacher there was a professor at Interlochen Arts Academy, and he said, I'll help you get a scholarship to get to the school. And he did. And so I was out by uh, my senior year of high school. You've noted that the bullying that you experienced allowed you to access your creative self. Um, in what way? I think when there was so much duress happening in my immediate reality, it forced so much fantasy for me to cope. Uh, I had to create 
alternative spaces <laughs> with nowhere to go really except the woods uh, down by the river. My parents were great about, in one way, I would have loved it if they would have got me out. <laughs> in another way, they allowed me to be in productions in Madison, Wisconsin at the Children's Theater of Madison. And that was where I lived. That was what felt like my real life. And then the life at school or, or and the life in this town, just it felt like a waking nightmare. So it created so much urgency inside of me to develop and nourish this fantasy world, which is what I do now as a job. I at my, And I mean, that also came from, I think, my parents. My mother was, I said this at her memorial years ago, she was very good at rearranging reality, which is what I do as a job now. Lovely, lovely phrase. Now, you being able to get solace from the fictional worlds mm-hmm. that you were creating. Um, you acted out scenes from your favorite films. All the time. Um, yeah. yeah. So so what kind of fictional worlds were you creating as a kid? Well, because of where I grew up, it's not... I didn't grow up in New York. I well, didn't, you grew I up didn't in grow up with... Prairie Dusac, Wisconsin, <laughs> which is a town of 4,000 people, and it's 94% white. There's a nearby ammunition plant that yeah, has that been decommissioned, um, and a lot of eagles. Yeah, and I think four thousand is is more. I mean, when I was a kid, I think it was twenty five hundred. It was Prairie du Sac and then Sauk City, and I think together it was around five thousand. And uh, and I haven't been back since my mother's death in um, twenty thirteen. So I wasn't, as I said, growing up in New York City with a ballet and theater and all of that. Uh, we would go see things at the Civic Center sometimes, um, but what I had first was film. Uh, that was what was the VCR was relatively new. I think that's actually a big part of my work, that I grew up in the advent of the VCR. So the ability to stop something, rewind, and play it again, I think is very much inside of my theater and choreography. This idea of repetition, cycle loops. So first of all, I remember, um, uh, what is that movie called? The Neverending Story. I loved watching that, and I would watch it over and over and over again. And I would dress up as the Empress with no name, because I thought that she could maybe see me. I thought that oh. maybe since this was this story that was unraveling, that maybe they could see me. I mean, I was like seven or something at that time. And then the big movie for me was Return to Oz. I know. Which is inside of that solo that you were talking about earlier to a like. Feruza Balk plays Dorothy Gale Post. When she's come home, she can't stop thinking about Oz, so they take her to... <laughs> They take her to a psych ward for her to receive electroshock therapy. Because I was experiencing abuse and and so things were happening, I was exhibiting traits of someone going through trauma like obsessive compulsive disorder. I was washing my hands. I had an early suicide attempt at nine. And I became the the person – I became the – what do we call that in psychology? The – you're just singled out. You're the you're the issue. You become sort of the object of what's wrong uh, because you're the one who has the symptoms. Mm. But you have the symptoms of what's going on around you. So at the same time, while I was being put into therapy for this, these events that were outside of my control, that um, I was displaying symptoms of trauma and duress, I saw Return to Oz, which is all about this girl who's in duress and instead of anyone listening to her she gets sent to get electroshock therapy but instead ends up going to this going back to Oz where everything is now shattered and in hell <laughs> and I would I would act out scenes from that all the time I mean I was obsessed with that I think that was the more one of the more positive ways that I coped was embodying these roles and pretending to be these characters 
You took your first dance class when you were six years old. I can't. I, I went and I, I, it's true. I did. Tap. Yeah. And so what made you decide to study dance? What was the, what was, why was that your artistic choice? Well, I think my mom just, I mean, I think I was dancing around the house anyway because I'd seen Annie. I mean, my sister talks about how they knew I was gay because (laughs) she came home once and I appeared at the top of the stairs or I don't, maybe the bottom of the stairs looking through the banisters singing the sun will come out tomorrow. And I would just, I was singing and dancing around the house. I I do remember the feeling of seeing Annie. You know, I'd probably sit on my lawn and sing, hoping a producer would come and take me away. So my mom put me in a in a dance class. and it, it seems like a pretty big, bold move for a young boy in a tiny rural town. Well, as I said, my mom was from Madison. I mean, and they were part of the Unitarian Church there. They were – my parents were so encouraging uh, in this aspect. And then when I was dealing with bullying, they just didn't know how to handle it. You described your mother as your best friend, and you two would wake up and watch Dynasty together when you were in second grade. And you've said that she wrote down a lot of the things you said as a kid. She did. And they're completely in sync with who you are today. (laughs) So do you remember anything that she wrote down that still applies? I mean, the th- I, mean I remember a couple of them. When she when she passed, I found she had she hadn't anticipated having a child, and so it was, it was this. It was very special for her. I mean, we were very enmeshed, and I was so isolated. And she she was this you know this friend, <laughs> which was bizarre because she was my mom, and she would wake me up to watch Dynasty with her. Like I'd be asleep, and my dad was somewhere, and she would wake me up and be like, "It's time to watch Dynasty." <laughs> uh, which I'm watching again right now, by the way, as a way the to just sort of cope. Or the reboot no, or the old? No, I don't want to watch the reboot. <laughs> this is the one I remember the most. So I'll tell this one is when her mother died, um, my Nana, who was, I loved so much, was very close to my Nana. My Nana was incredibly encouraging with me as well. Like I have photos of she'd have to be the prince while I would be Snow White and Evil Queen. She died when I was, I think, five. And I would draw her face on pieces of paper and then I put them on my face and I'd lay on the sofa like she was in the coffin because I was trying to (laughs) understand. So I was, you know, acting. And um, it was driving my mother crazy (laughs) because she was trying to deal with the death of her mother. So she was on the phone with a friend of hers and her friend said, well, let me talk to him. And I remember standing on a stool to talk on the phone. That part I remember. I don't remember the rest. But she had it written down that the, the woman said, you know, uh, your Nana wasn't just your grandmother. It wasn't just your mother's mother. She was also my friend, and we all miss her very much, and we're all together in this, in, in missing her. And I guess I was so irritated that someone was trying to negotiate my grief in some other way than the way I was dealing with it. And I said, well, I've got news for you, lady. Your friend is dead. And I hung up the phone. And <laughs> you're five? I was five. Yeah. So, I mean, there you go. Some people just come right on I out. I got news and, for you, lady. And you're, you know, you're really, a friend of mine once said, um, he said, you didn't have parents. You were found on an Dive leave in Versailles and raised by wolves. So I think my personality was pretty formed early on, for sure. When you were 13, you began classes that embraced the Martha Graham technique of dance. And for those that might not be familiar with that technique, can you tell us a little bit more about that style? Oh, it's like, it's so intense. Dance, it's so hard to think about 
how dance and or poetry where people might not <laughs> might not know about it. I mean, Graham changed changed everything. I wouldn't even say Graham changed dance. I'd say she changed theater. She changed visual art. Her work with Azama Noguchi, her work with composers like Stravinsky. But anyhow, to break down to where that modality of training comes from, it uh, it was it's based on the contraction, the release. So the contraction through the torso, which in- includes the pelvic contraction, and to also a release, the release of the torso through through not only through the torso but then up through the back and to me where Graham came from Ruth St. Dennis and uh, the Denishon company and she was in New York she this is all in blood memory which I read every day from the time I was like I don't know 13 to like 18 I would just reread pages of it the Denishon technique if you wanted to teach it you had to pay a fee and she didn't have that and so she was in New York the way I pictured this technique evolving was her. she would wake up every morning and sit on the floor waiting for something new to come. And I think it happened just from crying. It is contraction and release is you feel that in crying. Uh, It's sexual. It's laughter. It's the ache in memory. It's also, I mean, when I teach, I also look at that at early on if you're just dealing with confrontation. Should you meet someone and come to look at them in their eyes, there's a subtle contraction. You can even feel that. I mean, I don't think a lot of us walk around looking at people in the eyes just feeling really released and open. Maybe people do, and good for them. But I'd say more often than not, there's this slight contraction, maybe even a big contraction we feel. So she developed a whole technique based off of that, which she she always said it's contemporary, that she wanted it to be contemporary-based. And I was a teenager, and I was in this production of Macbeth. And... Lisa Thorell, who'd been part of the Martha Graham Company during the year they had done Panorama, had moved back to Madison, was starting her own company, was going to be teaching Graham in the school, and she came in to choreograph on The Three Witches. They were all teens. And the first was done, I think, in a more Twilight Tharp landscape. Mine was Graham, and the third one was just crawling. And I fell in love with the technique. I mean, it it's a, it's a way also of honing energy, if you've ever taken a kundalini class, there's something akin to uh, waking up this energy that's inside of your pelvis and your chakra, the chakras, and up through the spine, and then moving it out through the distal elements of the hands. It creates a very intense performer, I find. So I wanted to keep doing it. How did that training influence your work? Martha was also heavily uh, invested in psychology and creating these works that were about exploring all the facets of the human psyche of and of really looking at uh, things that are more dark, hidden. I think of Cave of the Heart when Medea has this solo and it begins with her just shaking and then she starts pulling this cord out of her dress, which is like her entrails that she eats and then throws up and eats and throws up. And I mean, that's shocking for, or if we look at a night journey and and when that's being done in terms of like the 50s and 60s into Phaedra, I mean, this was to look at the work in terms of that context. I mean, how shocking when the other things you're seeing are, are more in ballet. So for me, it brought about numerous things. One, a pairing of my psychology with somatics. So this sense of 
what that contraction is. I mean, that's how I learned to cry on cue, actually. It was not from acting. It was from the Graham technique. Another is ritual. I think that that work of of repetition and also of being able to connect to energy is uh, is very potent, and theater is a ritual. You've said that you were drawn to acting and dancing because you can rehearse things over and over and make them right, juxtaposing life itself, which takes place in sort of an out-of-control world where there's evil and bad people. And yeah. so is this, do you feel, from, from a more psychological point of view, trying to rewrite the past? I mean, I definitely think early on in my childhood that that was my draw to it. As I said, I had OCD, so I think obsessive-compulsive disorder goes really well with being able to rehearse forever (laughs) and memorize and go to the same place on stage every night. I think that that's changed for me slightly. My rehearsal process is strong, and it's strong to hold the chaos. What does that mean? So in order for there to be chaos, there needs to be a structure that builds around it because I'm also not interested in dancers getting or myself getting injured, which I used to do a lot in my 20s. I mean, it, for me in my in my 20s, it really wasn't a show unless I was bleeding. And I and then I just that that ended for me. It became more about I remember Mark Swanson, who's a visual artist I've worked with. I remounted a piece that I had originally done at the New Museum, and then I remounted it at Andrea at Lynn Gallery. And I called him after I remounted it, and I said, I never want to do that piece again, and I don't want to do work like that anymore. And he gave me this prompt, which was, you need to find how to scream without screaming, which for me is when I got into more of what I would say emotional formalism, and that that's more of what I'm looking at in terms of my work, but that is creating these structures and parameters so that there aren't, I mean, I am injured right now, but that I'm not just uh, doing like Viennese actionism, that there's rehearsal involved in this. And then inside of that rehearsal, someone can fall apart. Then you can corrode inside of the structure that I've made. Then you can corrode inside of that structure because you'll actually feel safe enough to do it. Well, it sounds like therapy. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's creating a container and a condition. But I found in my viewership of work that I had become less interested in just someone being salacious in front of me or or them doing a therapy session on me. Mm. I want people to do therapy and therapy, not on stage. For me, the work is about the audience. And so anything that I'm forming in front of the audience, I've greatly considered. I've worked with my dramaturg. I've dramaturged. And a lot of it isn't even memoir. It's not even true about myself. I'm as you said earlier, I'm trying to be a mirror. So that requires uh, rehearsal and finding these ways of trying to have with precision remember, study, and be what people are, which is all things. You've said that you don't make your work for the dance community or the theater community or for any community. You make your work for everyone. What does that mean and, and why is that so important to you to be able to make work for everyone? Well, I think... People really feel safe in categorical thought. So, What do you mean by that? So uh, they feel safer if they know that you're Catholic or Jewish. They feel safer if they know that you're gay or straight, if you're a man or a woman. And when those lines start to blur is when we run into tension. 
I'm creating events that are using theater and dance and performance art and visual art. And I would say my choreography comes out of the syntax of my writing. And my writing is inspired by the dynamics of my choreography. And they each vice grip each other to make these works that I've encountered. And it, it, I feel like for me, it comes up if I'm applying for a grant. And then my feedback will be that this wasn't dance enough or this wasn't theater enough. Hmm. And I'm looking to create experiences of catharsis. That's the goal. So these things are all getting used formally. I'm formally using elements of theater and dance, including humor and tragedy. So I'm not invested in making a piece that's for just one community. I'm interested in making work that is for people and ultimately for the people who need it the most. And I think it's something that can happen, especially when we get into uh, more experimental or theoretical work, that some people can feel really excluded from that work. Like if they haven't read Deleuze, they won't get it. And so it's important to me that that theoretical element of my work is kept to the process. And I'm not making work that is, look at my theory, <laughs> look at my theory in front of me. Yes, I read Pleasure of the Text by Roland Barthes. <laughs> like, let's keep that to the making, right? What I've been doing the last few years is while I'm making a piece, I write alongside of it, which is my theory and my research so that I can try to make sure that that stays there, so that the performance is a performance. I'm not interested in seeing performances that could be a paper. And I think we know what that is. You see this thing and you th- I think, oh, this is a paper. I don't know why I'm here. You've taken on an amazingly diverse range of subject matter in your performances. You've reinterpreted the 1982 film Poltergeist. You've re-envisioned Cleopatra, looking at the parallels between your life and the dancer and the choreographer Fred Herco. How do you decide what projects you're going to take on? I journal. I write uh, continually. And it comes up. It, It brings itself up. Each piece speaks to me, and then it starts to be made. And I test a lot. Of, not everything sticks. There's things that I'll begin and, and say, this isn't this isn't it, and then it ends. But it might create something to propel to the next. I mean, don't you find as an artist that these things come to you? Um, I think they come after thinking and sitting and pondering and crying for a long time. But you see what I mean? It's, this, it's that em- it, that emotion has to go somewhere. I think of in that that Louise Bourgeois documentary when she says, my body's too small for my emotions. And I'm 5'8". <laughs> I have big emotions. And I feel deeply, I'm heartbroken for the world. Yeah. And that, the artist is the stomach of society. We are digesting the indigestible. At this point, actually, I'd say we're the liver. Absolutely, you know, it's, yeah. Now it's we're really in full poison. And that's my job. This is... I view being an artist as a job. My father's father was a Calvinist minister, and I think that all has come through. It's the work. So that's my job. I have to keep going, and I have to keep I keep looking at things. I think if you're looking at the world and you're an artist, it presents itself. The material presents itself. You look, it comes. 
You've said this about your process or methodology. As an artist, my practice is based on the exploration of otherness. My works, while frequently humorous, are built to reflect the psychological toll and distress of xenophobia and displacement. I create by first engaging the psychological concerns of the work, then formally working with raw emotional content to create text, choreography, and direction, what I call the trauma method. Jack, I've never heard of the trauma method before. Can you elaborate a little bit? Yeah, I mean, so first, if I'm looking at, and and I always am, the work is coming from a psychological standpoint. So there needs to be research there. So I've interviewed uh, therapists who that might be their specialty I that I locate and I say, may I, do you mind if I come and talk to you about the subject or you look at analysis, you explore all this stuff, you ask questions. I, I ask questions of analysts or maybe a more psychodynamic therapist or maybe I need to talk to someone who's uh, actively engaged in politics. So I, there's that research. And then I uh, look at that through other people's direct, honest experience with it and what I've observed in life. Where that moves from then is me l- looking at what are a lot of these common denominators mm-hmm. and then where does that happen through movement? Where does, the, where does the body take that on? Because trauma goes into the body. Our feelings are physicalized emotions or maybe it's emotions or physicalized feelings. I can't remember which way that, that phrase goes. What I love about how you view yourself in your work is that your personal story isn't that interesting. Mm -mm. But what is interesting is what is going on everywhere. Right. So given your trauma and your experience with bullying, how are you feeling about the awareness or the semi-awareness that bullying has in our culture now? We're in a terrible place still. I mean, having... The first lady talk about how we shouldn't have bullying online, and yet we have her husband with those tweets. I mean, it's just the thing that is incomprehensible to me is the is the cruelty to the vulnerable. It's something I can't I simply don't get. And until the most vulnerable of us are free, no one is free. And um, I find bullying, and it, it happens everywhere. And I literally see it every day in New York. And I think it would require people having more of a sense of heart. And may that happen. We need the activism to stay strong. I mean, looking at these kids who are leading this movement with the, with the NRA, where are we? Where are the more, more, more adults need to be adult? And that is where bullying could potentially start to slow down. Well, it's outrageous to me that now people, adults, are bullying these kids. It's, it, it, as I said, Radio it's, inco- hosts it's and, incomprehensible. Uh, it's, it's, it is yeah. a pathology. It, it is pathological. It is sick. That is an, an illness that has to be addressed. It, and, and we have to ask those hosts, what happened to you? Because something did. You know, when you come up against the superego... That is the thing of something must have happened to you. Like when we meet someone cruel, the question is, what happened to you? Because something did. That's If you've gone through trauma, then you either reenact that on people or you become a victim unless you get help. So, you know, we're seeing a lot of people who I think are reenacting the past. They're stuck in that loop. I mean, that is a a goal for me inside a performance that it, the mirror can be strong enough 
that it wakes them up. All well, art is political. It's either waking you up or it's putting you to sleep. <laughs> beautifully, beautifully said, Jack. You have said that performance is about catharsis, but that catharsis doesn't happen in rehearsal. It happens with the audience. Yeah. So how and how does that happen? In dance and more experimental performance, you generally have four nights, which in a theater, that'd be your previews. I mean, your previews are generally a couple weeks and then you open. In dance and uh, ex- experimental theater and performance, you have these four, maybe five nights, and then it's gone. I mean, it's just beyond devastating. I can't, each show gets harder on me. Each show, when it ends that short, after I've spent a year and a half on it, or to two years, feels like the Olympics or something. Um, so the audience is the final collaborator, and the show changes with the audience. It's another reason I wish I had longer runs, because I get all this information on opening night that then I change the next night. Because the audience, I can feel them. I feel their feelings. I feel, which are multivalent. They're not all just one feeling. And that creates this other dialogue. And that is where the catharsis happens. It's the, between the performance and the audience. I mean, in therapy, you have the therapist, you have the client, and then the healing in a way happens somewhere in between there. It's sort of, it happens on, on an angle. And uh, that's the, what I'm creating. Maybe eventually I'll be a psychoanalyst and I'll just do my audience one at a time. <laughs> Claudia LaRocco of the New York Times wrote this about you. With his mad blue Betty Davis eyes and penchant for public suffering, he is good at making a spectacle of himself and, more to the point, he excels at making his audiences deeply uncomfortable. Why make your audience uncomfortable? I think the... Discomfort comes out of seeing oneself and seeing the things that one doesn't want to see that we that we turn away from. I, again, coming, I mean, in terms of Graham, it's I'm not showing things how people want them to be. I'm showing them as they are. And that is uncomfortable. I mean, it's when we think about what we go through in a day and the things we might try to shut down, lock away, those are ghosts. Those haunt us. And that's where the exorcism of my work comes about or the sense of that they're, they're all coming out. They're spilling out. They're, they're everywhere. And that is – that's uncomfortable. The, the work that I've most loved from film to literature to performance does make me feel uncomfortable. And part of it is also that I don't know where it's going. Again, back to categorical thought, I think people really want – they can frequently feel – uh, good if they have a sense of where it's going because that creates a form of sedation. And when we're living in such high stakes, people maybe want to just put something on that's so super familiar that they can feel. I mean, I'm rewatching Dynasty. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm rewatching it. So I think that's where the discomfort comes from. It's, it's me not shying away from things as they are. You have some provocative opinions and thoughts about hope. Mm, right. Tell me about that. Well, I, I find that hope says that there's somewhere better to go. I feel it negates where we are. It's it's sort of this thing of it just will happen. Things just will get better. Things get better if we take actions to make them better. And it requires being active. They don't just 
magically change. I do find that people wait for change to happen. Unfortunately. And I'm someone who's done that. And so I can speak to that it doesn't. I have too. Yeah. But I do have faith. And But my faith is that things change. So that your action will manifest in if some results. If you take an action, something happens. If you, if you try to help, something happens. What about your teaching? Do you feel that teaching forces you to be hopeful or optimistic? Mm, I, I mean, my, I, 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 it's not even optimism. It's my belief that I am so excited about the younger generation. Mm. I mean, I'm in... It's gotten really exciting lately, it's, right? Well, We've you, passed I mean, the baton. Well, the baton we, has we been passed. We looked at where the voting was uh, for, the, for the election, and you looked at what their, how their age range voted. Come on. I mean, that is... They are pushing to have this discourse. I mean, it's what I said earlier about these the, the, the kids who are leading this movement with the NRA. It's, I don't think it's hope as much as it is a sense of, again, faith that the nature of things is to change and fall apart and turn to something else. And so my job is to be the adult there. That's what I'm doing there. I'm, tr- I'm trying to create the best environment and the best container for them. So that they can lead, because it's I'm not going to be here forever. <laughs> well, let's talk about your most recent work. You had an extraordinary show at New York Live Arts titled Everything is Imaginable. The New York Times described it as a dance fantasia with a quartet of prominent male artists from different corners of dance to join in exploring their queer identities. Drawing from their childhoods, Mr. Fervor has devised a solo for each. The mix of styles and personalities offers an intimate and intriguing look at the intersection of dance and sexuality. Congratulations on your sold-out run. Congratulations on the numerous pieces in the New York Times, the extraordinary collaboration you did with them on Instagram, Uh, which is something people can go and look at. How did you come up with the concept for the show? So this piece began, I had just finished doing a, a work called I Want You to Want Me. And my close collaborator, who I've known since I went to, we met at Interlochen, Reed Bartlemy, he found out that he had cancer while we were making that work. And the work became, um, I was taking inspiration from Suspiria and this idea of uh, gothic qualities and um, and vampirism and it was funny, but it was also it was so wrapped up in death. And I was interested in looking at what it would be to be with friends I didn't have and to create conditions of play. And so I began that process in August of 2016. And then the election happened. And then my father died. And everything I made, pretty much everything I had made up until that point had to go. It just didn't make sense anymore. My context had changed. My original questions to them had been there, which was in the absence of any queer icons for us as kids in the 80s, who did you love? Like, who was your icon? And I didn't give a parameter for childhood. I just said that. So they all chose different things. So James chose Judy Garland. Lloyd said Martha Graham. Garen Scribner said Brian Boitano. Reed said My Little Pony. And mine is Michelle Pfeiffer's Selena Kyle Catwoman. And um, so I made solos for the four uh, men who were in this piece which when I then put them together, realized came out of a historical chronology for myself, a first musical theater for Judy, Martha Graham. Brian Boitano was looking at 
ice skating routines and then trying to abstract them onto the stage. So that's coming more into my more later adult work. And then Reed's material really comes out of my own choreographic process that is coming out of psychological gesture, I would say. And then the Catwoman piece was coming out of both psychological gesture and my use of abstracting film into choreography. And then after the solos, there was this quartet I had made early on that I decided to keep. But I also decided to, and the reason I had cast Garen in it was I used to be in it. And then I wanted to cut myself out. Why? Because I felt so isolated that I had to actually comment on my lack of friends growing up instead of just creating a condition of, oh, here I am playing with friends that I wish I would have had. It just didn't make sense. It, it wasn't true. So I had to just make two acts. So the first act were these solos and then this quartet. And then in that quartet, James and Reed are doing this pas de deux I made that comes more out of my queer balancing. And Lloyd and Garen are, are in this sort of Martha Graham sex duet upstage. And then it ends and the curtain closes Jeremy Jacobs' incredible set, this gay pink abstraction of ballet flats gets taken away. We're just in this black box stage with a smaller set. I mean, it's the model of the set upstage that I'm now interfacing with as a way of almost I took the whole show and it like was just in my mind and it was back there and I'm alone. And then I talk some. I, I tell a story about having torn my calf a couple weeks prior to the show and what that brought up for me. And it just starts to shatter. It starts to corrode. And the prompt for my part came from my dramaturg, which was, he said, well, what does Catwoman do in Batman Returns? She comes home to her pink apartment. She spray paints everything black and destroys it. So that's what I do in Act Two. The Reed comes in and we do have this moment, which is about who is that friend who you've known forever and what are the tensions that exist in friendship? I want to even look at the taboo. I think it's very taboo to talk about, uh, you know, in relationships. We're like, oh, relationships, they go through their highs and lows. Sometimes you don't, you know, you're mad at your partner, da, da, da. People don't want to talk about that with friends. In friends, I found that to be even more devastating. It's the friends and the what's happening in the friendships. That can haunt me at 2 a.m. And so Reed and I have this duet that's about that and um, – and my experience of post-election, friends getting – we all became so tired. I felt like people almost became more isolated in some ways. We'd come together for these rallies and then need to recharge alone somehow or or friends' interests changed and, you know, people go in these different ways. What was that? And the shattering effects of all of this, the, the queer eye is a shattered eye. It just breaks apart and then it turns into something else in front of whoever it's in front of. So that's all these solos came out of my body. I make all the choreography of the dancers. Of course, I was with these incredible dancers who can definitely get their leg higher than me. But it all came out of my body. So it was about how did these, what's this lineage? What are these solos? And that this is all of, all of this inside of the queer kaleidoscope coming out of trauma and play. And I also would say in terms of play and humor in my work, which my work is also very funny. But, Cheeky. It's very witty. Yeah, and it's it comes out of a, a self-awareness, which I think a lot of people have. That's something I do think we're at now. I, I feel that there's more self-awareness these days than maybe like 20 years ago. So that's where the work, that's how the genesis of it happened and it unfolded really over a year. Why the title Everything is Imaginable? Well, the, it first began, my titles always come first. And it was this thing of, what did you imagine as a child and can I create that for you now? So 
if James uh, was obsessed with Judy Garland, how could I give him the best Judy Garland solo possible? The other thing that I wanted to say inside of that title is everything is imaginable, including the unimaginable, including losing your mind. The shattering effects I felt post-election of feeling all of my trauma come on to me in a hyper-physicalized way that I had not experienced since leaving there was surreal. I couldn't have, I couldn't have imagined that. What do you do with dance and movement that you can't do with words? The body shows us everything. I mean, one of the first things I do with students is comes out of right out of Graham. I have them walk across the floor with their right arm over their head and say their name. And I get so much information just from that. Like what? Like what? Where they're afraid. Where you they're, can tell. Where they're open. Mm-hmm. Um, what it is if, like, the hips have mobility to them. What if the hips are locked? You know, are the shoulders forward or on the, are they on the back? I, I love think, that you can notice all of that. I spend lots of time watching people. I had a full anatomy training, so I knew where all the bones and muscles were, where, where all of that comes from, the psoas, this deep muscle in your body. I mean, that muscle flexes if you were to hear an explosion before you even hear that explosion. That's your panic muscle. And interestingly enough, that activates in a contraction. So, I mean, I, I could talk forever about where dance comes in to play inside of this. It's um, It picks up what I can't talk about. For me, I, I mean, I'm also trying to make work in a, and I believe in making work in a post-conceptual way, that it, it's coming from feelings and inspiration and, and I create all this material and then I need to be formal with it so that it can be viewed. And then also creating mystery. You are a true polymath, Jack Ferber. Not only are you a dancer, performer, writer, professor, you're also a podcast host. <laughs> I have, I have I, thanks to Reed Bartleby. He really, he really, he. We have a podcast. So it's called Dance and Stuff. It's called What's Going On with Dance and Stuff. Oh, what's yeah. going on? Yeah. With dance what's going? Because we were because when and when we came up with it, we thought, well, what's going on with dance and stuff? Because <laughs> when you start talking about it, it's truly what's going on with dance and stuff. I mean, as we just experienced when you asked, well, what's you know, where does dance come in? Where language runs out? It's it's a hard subject to talk about. Um, You've done 50 episodes. Congratulations. Well, we're coming up. Yeah, we're coming up on our 50th episode. Uh, We frequently just talk about anything. We review movies a lot. Uh, And then we we get to have guests on who people might not know about. I feel like dance and poetry are pretty – they don't get a lot of airtime, right? So – uh, it was important to me for the field. And we'll all, we also have certainly have performance makers on, and I want to have more experimental theater makers on um, so that we can give a platform for these people who are the avant-garde. The last thing I want to talk to you about is what you're working on next. I you know what it is. Plans. I know what it is. Yeah, title came first, Love, Mom. So love, comma, mom. Um, I'm looking at romance and uh, motherhood, specifically through Golden Age Hollywood. The main movie I've been looking at is now Voyager. And um, I'm working out with the actor Christian Coulson. And uh, I'm looking at archetypal scenes that are romantic. So, of course, I mean, I, I have to – North by Northwest with the scene in the woods. And, I mean, they'll, we'll be, we're looking through all of these. And so 
I'm aggregating them and uh, creating them as a, a score. And so the first half of it will be about romance and love, and the second half will be about motherhood. And where and how do we not let mothers have both? I want to look at it as well as, of course, there's this valence of we don't see the queer body in these experiences. Jack, thank you so much for being on Design Matters today. Thank you for making the world just a more artistic and authentic and an honest place with everything that you're doing. Debbie, thank you so much. I'm so grateful that you invited me to be on today. Thank you. If you are interested in finding out more about Jack Fervor, which you should absolutely do, head on over to his website, jackfervor.org. This is the 14th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. For more information about Design Matters or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to debbiemillman.com. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our new Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at d.rip slash debbie-millman. That's d.rip slash debbie-millman. If you want others to know about this podcast, please write a review in the iTunes store and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com and recorded live at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland. Generous support for Design Matters Media is provided by Wix.com. 